This is a Federal News Network podcast. IRS staff members knew ahead of time that some of the individual payments for pandemic relief would go to the deceased. It's because of how timely or untimely the vital records data comes in from Social Security. There are other ways to verify people's eligibility for government benefits. For more, the Vice President of Strategic Alliances at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, Matt Harcourt. Mr. Harcourt, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Good to talk to you. Data is always at the bottom of some of these questions. And, of course, LexisNexis is a data provider. Does the government, do you believe, not have the data it needs, or is it simply not available in a way that's useful and timely sometimes when doing eligibility determinations? You know, Tom, I think you say the word government, and it, it, it's a large connotation. State, local, federal, everybody falls into that piece. And I think probably most of the data they, they do have in one way, shape, or form. What they don't have it is across all government in one database that makes it easy. So, you know, you look at all the different types of data that, that is out there from consumer data to phone and email to assets to property, licensing, business and employment data, derogatory information. When you put all that together, you really get a get a picture of somebody. And the government probably has it in different silos and different patches and in counties and cities and, and across everything, but it, it, it needs to be pulled together. And then it becomes really difficult when you get into assigning the data to the right person. I know that there are 14 Matt Harcourts alive in the country right now. If, if we're talking about Tom Smith or Tom Jones, how many, how many of those are there? So then, then the government would, would, the onus would be put on the government to then assign all that data to the right Tom Smith or Jones. We do that for a living. We have a, a proprietary algorithm that runs through that, that, that makes sure that with you know, 99.9% accuracy, that when we ingest a data source, when we ingest a new piece of data, that it gets assigned to the right Lex ID is what we call that. Got it. And how would an agency then know that the data is constitutionally available to it, that privacy is protected and so on, that it can make use of that data in, say, a eligibility determination? So we're governed by by a whole bunch of uh, different regulations, everything from Gramm-Leach-Bliley to the Driver's License Protection Act. Um, so we make that determination based off of the agency, their mission, what they what they're going to use that data for. We have a team of experts that that assign um, usage. For instance, law enforcement probably has access to a wider set of data than would um, dog license within a state or something like that. Sure. And let's talk about the IRS for a moment, because, again, they did know that this would happen because it's just the nature of the information sharing scheme they have set up, that there's a mismatch in time for the deceased. Bringing back the idea of Jim Smith, I once read there's a Jim Smith Society. I don't know whether it still exists of people that are afflicted with such a common name. And I guess if someone yeah. wanted to apply for benefits fraudulently, what better name to use than Jim Smith? So what would be a better mechanism, say, for the IRS to know that this Jim Smith is this Jim Smith and he's alive versus that Jim Smith is legitimately, as the character in The Wizard of Oz put it, most definitely dead? 
So the foundation of any successful identity theft prevention strategy is verification and authentication. Government agencies have to take a multi-layer approach to both of those processes. Identity is not static. It's changing. It's changing constantly. So taking those couple of steps in, I want to verify that the Tom Temin that I'm working with is actually the Tom Temin that I want to be working with or that he exists. And then I want to verify and authenticate that I am actually working with the right Tom. It's not just necessarily deceased people or incarcerated people getting access to um, CARES distribution money, but it's also uh, synthetic identities that are living out there and bots that are running programs on, on many of these programs to try to test what they can and cannot do. I think that the opportunity for fraud is much deeper than just sending a check to the, the wrong deceased person or somebody who's incarcerated. It goes much deeper than that. We're speaking with Matt Harcourt. He's vice president of strategic alliances, we think, at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. And <laughs> if an agency is operating an application that requires verification and authentication of the identity, how do they incorporate these third-party data sources such as yours into their application process when it's probably drawing on their own database? So a couple different ways. We, we like to sit at the front end and we like to verify that beforehand. The federal government has set up login.gov, which um, takes into account LexisNexis as well as a couple of other providers of data to be the front end for identity verification. The government has a challenge. People are accustomed to a frictionless experience when they work with Amazon or Walmart or Target or somebody online, and they're expecting that same sort of frictionless uh, process when they work with the government. The old way of asking what your mother's maiden name was and, or something like that, especially in an emergency like we experienced with the CARES Act, uh, is probably a little bit too clunky. So then I think they have to start looking at digital identities as well, verifying that people are acting in a way that they normally act and not acting like a bot would act. Using big data across a shared global network, we can identify high-risk users accessing systems by looking at behavior that deviates from the norm or from, from trusted digital identities that, that we've seen through millions of other consumer interactions. And a lot of agencies deal with the unbanked, as they're called. They don't have bank accounts or they don't have credit cards. And so they still have to get checks, whereas many of the programs come through electronic benefit cards and so forth or direct transfer to bank accounts. How do the unbanked, which may not be much of a data footprint, come into this so that they can be verified also? We throw that unbanked into, into two buckets. There are the people who are unbanked because they're incredibly wealthy and they don't have any sort of credit. And we, they're unbanked because they're um, usually uh, poor and they, they don't have credit as well. We are not a credit agency. We don't while we do get data from some of the credit bureaus, we look at a bunch of other different sources of data, utility connections we look at. We look at legal information around bankruptcy or civil court records. We look at hunting and fishing licenses to get data around that, DEA controlled substance lists, and then derogatory information as well, departments of corrections lists, criminal courts, arrest logs, things like that we're pulling identities from as well. So it's not just looking at that credit data you miss those super wealthy people and poor people as well often. And agencies are beginning to think about the idea of continuous verification, such as is already being done for security clearances. 
because some of the programs like food stamps or you know TANF and these different programs are ongoing. They're not one-time checks. And so you want to make sure people remain eligible. How does that all work? We play in that continuous evaluation on the security piece. The only thing that I would draw a line to is dual participation for benefits, which would fall closest to that. So making sure that somebody is not living on the state line between Virginia and Maryland and and getting benefits in in both of those states, or making sure that people aren't dipping into multiple programs that they shouldn't be dipping into. That's the only type of continuous monitoring we're doing on something like this. And for an agency to incorporate LexisNexis or one of the data services, what does it cost? Just order of magnitude. Is it millions a year, tens of millions, tens of thousands? Much less than millions in most cases. Most of the time it's based off of how many licenses they wish to purchase or uh, the number of, of bodies that they're putting through that program. But our pricing is on a kind of a sliding scale based off of usage. So the price per drink, in other words. We can do it price per drink or we can do a, a buy a bunch and set a limit on it. We can do it either way. Matt Harcourt is Vice President of Strategic Alliances at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 